Hello, Ratchet Book Club listeners. Before I get to the episode, I want to take a moment to address the June 24th Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. This decision stripped away the legal right to have a safe and legal abortion. Restricting access to comprehensive reproductive care, including abortion, threatens the health and independence of all Americans. This decision can also lead to the loss of other rights. To learn more about what you can do to help, go to podvoices.help. I encourage you to speak up, take care, and spread the word. Welcome to Ratchet Book Club, where we read hood classics and good classics. I'm Derek. 916-633-1537, Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com, Ratchet Book Club on Twitter, Ratchet Book Club on Facebook. Chapter 74. When at last Paul Damascus reached the parsonage late Friday afternoon, January 12th, he arrived on foot, as he arrived everywhere these days. A cold wind raised a haunting groan as it harried itself around and around in the bronze hollow of the bell atop the church steeple, shook dead needles from the evergreens, and resisted Paul's progress with what seemed like malicious intent. Miles ago, between the towns of Brooking and Pistol River, he had decided that he wouldn't walk again this far north at this time of year, even if the guidebooks did claim that the Oregon coast was a comparatively temperate zone in winter. It's not. Trust me. I've been there. Not even close. Although he was a stranger, arriving unannounced and something of an eccentric by anyone's definition, Paul was received by Grace and Harrison White with warmth and fellowship. At their doorstep, raising his voice to compete with the wailing weather, he hurriedly blurted out his mission, as if they might reel back from his wild, wind-blown presence if he didn't talk quickly enough. I walked here from Bright Beach, California to tell you about an exceptional woman whose life will echo through the lives of countless others long after she's gone. Her husband died the night her son was born, but not before naming the boy Bartholomew because he had been so impressed by this momentous day. And now the boy is blind, and I hope you'll be able and willing to give some comfort to his mother. The whites failed to reel backwards, didn't even flinch from his unfortunately explosive statement of purpose. Instead, they invited him to their home, later invited him to dinner, and later still asked him to stay the night in their guest room. They were as gracious as any people he had ever met, but they also seemed genuinely interested in his story. He wasn't surprised that Agnes Lampion would enthrall them, for hers was a life of clear significance. That they seemed equally interested in Paul's story, however, surprised him. Perhaps they were merely being kind, and yet with apparent fascination, they drew out of him so many details of his long walks, of the places he had been and the reasons why, of his life with Perry. Friday night, he slept more soundly than he had slept since coming home from the pharmacy to discover Joshua Nunn and the paramedic in solemn silence at Perry's bedside. 
He didn't dream of trekking across a wasteland, neither salt flats nor snow-whipped plains of ice. And when he woke in the morning, he felt rested in his body, mind, and soul. Harrison and Grace welcomed him in spite of the fact that a friend and parishioner had died on Thursday, leaving them both bereft and with church obligations. You're heaven sent, Grace assured Paul at breakfast Saturday morning. With all your stories, you've lifted our hearts when we most needed to be lifted. The funeral was at 2 o'clock, after which family and friends of the deceased would gather here in the parsonage for a social, to break bread together, and to share their memories of the loved one lost. Saturday morning, Paul made himself useful by assisting Grace with food preparation and by setting out the plates, flatware, and glasses on the dining room sideboard. He was in the kitchen at 11.20, spreading frosting on a large chocolate sheet cake, while the reverend expertly frosted a coconut layer job. If you've never been to a black church, let me tell you what happened. So you'll go to church at like 4 in the morning. And then when you're at church at 4 in the morning, you'll go to Sunday school at like 8 in the morning. And then after you get out of Sunday school at like 12 in the noon, no, I'm kidding, you'll get out of Sunday school at like 10 a.m. Then they have service that goes from 10 a.m. until like 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Then after you get out of that service, they'll say that they're having some sort of church coming to visit them um, later on that evening. So they're going to serve dinner to everybody. And when they serve dinner, they serve the same exact foods every time. There is no deviation from what gets served at a black church dinner that goes between services. If I am wrong in any of these regards, and you are black, this is important, and you are black or have been in a black church during one of these events, please let me know. But here is the menu for a black church between services you ain't going nowhere dinner. Fried chicken. If it's not fried chicken, and it's always cooked by a church mother, and there's always a little bit of brown grease in the pan, but not enough to sicken you out because they also put the paper towels at the bottom to soak up the grease. But if it's not fried chicken, and it's cooked good, by the way, it's popping. Maybe not as much seasoning as I would like on mine, but it's still good. If it's not fried chicken, then it is spaghetti. There's no in-between on this. There's never lasagna. There's never lasagna. However, there's always also a green salad with an indeterminate salad dressing on top. It might be Italian. It might be Italian ranch. You're scared to ask. There's no olives in it. It's always lettuce with the uh, tomatoes that are chopped in like quarters. Um, yeah, croutons. It's really it. Um, they might get fancy and put some bell peppers in it. It's what, it's what you're getting. So, fried chicken or spaghetti. Salad with indeterminate dressing. Croutons. Roll. Hard roll. With a butter pat. Punch. Made from a concentrate that they put into a big old container. Like a big... Uh, after you win the game, we're pouring this over the coach's head type container. Punch. Uh, or it's in one of those for some stupid reason. It's in a big glass bowl with a, with a, a ladle in it. The kids drink that first. They go crazy for that. Lemon cake. With lemon frosting on top of the lemon cake. Chocolate cake, either yellow cake with chocolate frosting 
or chocolate cake with chocolate frosting. German chocolate cake with coconut. Coconut cake, which no one touches unless it's nothing else left there to eat. And it's always two layers. And it's always a round cake. Coconut cake with coconut frosting. White frosting with coconut on top. I think that's about it. If there's a birthday or it's a church's anniversary or it's pastor appreciation, they'll actually get a cake from Costco that's like one of those huge sheet cakes that's chocolate with chocolate in the middle. I think that's about it. I don't think I missed anything. They don't do mashed potatoes. They might do green beans. Yeah, green beans out of a can. Uh, Soggy. Soggy little things. That's it. Grace, having just finished washing a sink full of dishes, stood monitoring the application of the icing and drying her hands when the telephone rang. She picked it up, and as she said hello, the front of the house exploded. A great boom. Concussion rocked the floor and shuttered the walls and made the roof timber squill as though unsuspected colonies of bats had taken flight by the thousands all in the same instance. Grace dropped the phone. Harrison let the frosting knife slip out of his fingers. Through the cacophony of shattering glass, splintering wood, and cracking plaster, Paul heard the hard roar of an engine, the blare of a horn, and suspected what must have happened. Some drunk or reckless driver had crashed at high speed into the parsonage. Having arrived at the same astonishing but nevertheless obvious conclusion, Harrison said, someone has to have been hurt. He hurried out the kitchen, through the dining room, with Paul close behind him. In the front wall of the living room, where once had been a fine bay window, the parsonage lay open to the sunny day. Torn shrubbery, carried in from outside, marked the path of destruction. In the very middle of the room, plowed against a toppled sofa in a thick drift of broken furniture, a battered red Pontiac sagged to the left on broken springs and blown tires. A portion of the crazed windshield quivered and collapsed inward, while plumes of steam hissed from under the buckled hood. Though they had expected the cause of the explosion, both Paul and Harrison were halted by shock at the sight of all this ruination. They had expected to find the car jammed into the wall of the house, never to spar inside. The speed required to penetrate this distance into the structure beggared Paul's skills of calculation and made him wonder if even recklessness and alcohol were sufficient to produce such a catastrophe. The driver's door opened, shoving aside a damaged tea table and a man climbed out of the Pontiac. Two things about him were remarkable, beginning with his face. His head was wrapped with white gauze bandages, so he looked like Claude Rains in The Invisible Man, or like Humphrey Bogart in that movie about the escaped convict who had plastic surgery to foil the police and to start a new life for Lauren Bacall. Blonde hair sprouted from the top of the elaborate wrappings. Otherwise, only his eyes, his nostrils, and his lips were uncovered. The second remarkable thing was the gun in his hand. The sight of the heavily bandaged face apparently pressed all the compassion buttons in the reverend because he broke out of his paralytic shock and started forward before he registered the weapon. For a driver who had just engaged in a demolition derby with the house, the mummified man was steady on his feet and unhesitant in his actions. He turned to Harrison White and shot him twice in the chest. Paul didn't realize that Grace had followed them into the living room until she screamed. She started to push past him, heading towards her husband, even as Harrison went down. 
holding the pistol, fully extending his right arm in execution style, the gunman approached the fallen minister. Grace White was petite, and Paul wasn't. Otherwise, he might not have been able to halt her determined rush towards her husband, might not have been able to scoop her off her feet, and, carrying her in his arms, spirit her to safety. The parsonage was a clean, respectable, and even charming house, but nothing about it might be called grand. No sweeping staircase offered a glamorous showcase adequate for Scarlett O'Hara. Instead, the stairs were enclosed, accessed by a door in one corner of the living room. Paul was nearest to that corner when he halted Grace in a rush towards certain death. Before he quite realized what he was doing, he found he had flung open the door and had climbed half the single long flight of steps, as sure-footed as Doc Savage or the Saint, or the Whistler, or any of the other Pulp Fiction heroes whose exploits have for so long been his adventures by proxy. Behind them, two shots roared, and Paul knew that the Reverend was no longer of this world. Grace knew it too, because she went limp with misery in his arms, ceased struggling against him. Yet, when he put her down the upstairs hall, she cried out for her husband, Harry! and tried to plunge once more into the narrow stairwell. Paul pulled her back. He gently but firmly thrust her through the open door of the guest room in which he had spent the night. Stay here. Wait. At the foot of the bed, a cedar chest, four feet long, two feet wide, perhaps three feet high, brass handles. Judging by Grace's expression when Paul plucked the chest off the floor, he figured it was heavy. He had no way of knowing for sure because he was in a weird state. So saturated with adrenaline that his heart squirted blood through his arteries at a speed Zeus couldn't have matched with the fastest lightning bolts in his quiver. The chest felt no heavier than a pillow, which couldn't be right, even if it was empty. With no clear awareness of having left the guest room, Paul looked down the enclosed stairs. The bandaged man stormed up from the ruin of the living room, gauze fluttering around his lips as his hard exhalation seemed to prove that he wasn't a long-dead feral reanimated to punish some heedless archaeologist who had ignored all warnings and violated his tomb. So this wasn't a weird tales moment. Paul pitched the chest into the stairwell. A gunshot. Cedar shrapnel. With a bark of pain, chest to chest with defeat, the killer was borne downward by the fragrant weight and a clink and clatter of brass handles. Paul in the guest room again, sweeping a bedside lamp to the floor, lifting the nightstand, then once more at the head of the stairs. At the bottom, the killer had pushed the cedar chest aside and clambered to his feet. Out of his rabble tootin' common windings, he peered up at Paul and fired one shot without taking aim, almost half-heartedly, before disappearing into the living room. Paul set the nightstand down, but waited, ready to shove the furniture into the stairwell if the swaddled gunman dared return. Downstairs, two shots cracked, and an instant after the second, an explosion shook the parsonage as though the long-promised judgment were at hand. This was a real explosion, not the impact of another runaway Pontiac. Orange firelight bloomed in the living room below. A wave of heat washed over Paul, and immediately behind the heat came greasy masses of roiling black smoke onto the stairwell as to a flue. The guest room. Bring Grace to the window. Disengage the latch. No good. Warped or painted shut. Small panes, sturdy mullions, too difficult to break out. Hold your breath and hurry, he urged, drawing her with him into the hall. Choking fumes, blinding soot, a licking heat told him the slithering fire had followed the smoke up the stairs and now coiled perilously close in the murk. Toward the front of the house, along a hallway suddenly as dark as a tunnel, towards a vague light in the seething gloom, 
and here a window at the end of the hall. This one slid easily up. Fresh, cold air. Welcome daylight. Outside, flames turned to the left and right of the opening. The front of the house is afire. No turning back. In the fuming blackness, they will become disoriented in seconds, fall, and suffocate as surely as they will burn. Besides, the open window, providing draft, would draw the fire rapidly down the hallway at their backs. Quick, very quick, he warned, helping Grace through the fireframe window and onto the roof of the porch. Coughing, spitting saliva that was bitter with toxic chemicals, Paul followed her, slapping frantically at his clothes when fire singed his shirt. Like autumn red ivy, lushly leafed vines of flame crawled up the house. The porch under them was ablaze as well. Shingles smoldered beneath their feet, and flames ringed the roof on which they stood. Grace headed towards the edge. Paul shouted, halting her. Although the distance to the ground was only ten feet, she would be risking too much by running blindly off the roof and leaping to clear the fringe of fire at the edge. A landing on the lawn might end well. But if she fell into the walkway, she might break a leg or her back, depending on the angle of impact. She was in Paul's arms again, as though by magic, and he ran as fire broke through the cedar-shaked shingles and as the roof shuddered under them. Airborne through billowing smoke, across flames that briefly caressed the soles of his shoes. He tried to lean back as he dropped, with the hope that he would fall under her, providing cushion if they met with sidewalk instead of lawn. Apparently, he didn't lean back far enough, because amazingly, he landed on his feet in the winter-faded grass. The shock buckled him, and he dropped to his knees. Still cradling Grace, he lowered her to the ground as gently as he had ever lowered Fragile Perry onto her bed, quite as if he had planned it this way. He sprang to his feet, or maybe only staggered up, depending on whether his image of himself right now was pulp or real, and surveyed the scene, looking for the bandaged man. A few neighbors crossed the lawn towards Grace, and others approached along the street, but the killer was gone. The siren shrieked so loud that he felt a sympathetic vibration in his dental fillings, and with a sharp cry of brakes, a great red truck turned the corner, at once followed by a second. Too late. The parsonage was fully engulfed. With luck, they would save the church. Only now, as the tide of adrenaline began to ebb, Paul wondered who could possibly have wanted to kill a man of peace and God, a man as good as Harrison White. This momentous day, he thought, and he shook with sudden terror at the inevitability of new beginnings. Chapter 75 The generous expense allowance provided by Simon Magison paid for a three-room suite at a comfortable hotel. One bedroom for Tom Vanadium, one for Celestina and Angel. Having booked the suite for three nights, Tom expected that he would spend far fewer late hours in his bed than sitting watch in the shared living room. At 11 o'clock Saturday morning, having just settled in the hotel after arriving from St. Mary's, they were waiting for the SFPD to deliver suitcases of clothes and toiletries that Rena Moeller, Celestina's neighbor, had packed according to her instructions. While waiting, the three of them took an early lunch, or a late breakfast, at a room service table in the living room. For the next few days, they would eat all their meals in the suite. Most likely, Kane had left San Francisco. And even if the killer hadn't fled, this was a big city, where a chance encounter with him was unlikely. Yet, having assumed the role of guardian, Tom Vanadium had a zero tolerance for risk, because the inimitable Mr. Kane had proved himself to be a master of the unlikely. Tom didn't attribute supernatural powers to this killer. Enoch Kane was mortal, not all-seeing and all-knowing. 
Evil and stupidity often go together, however, and arrogance is the offspring of their marriage, as Tom had earlier told Celestina. An arrogant man, not half as smart as he thinks, with no sense of right and wrong, with no capacity for remorse, can sometimes be so breathtakingly reckless that, ironically, his recklessness becomes his greatest strength. Because he is capable of anything, of taking risks that mere madmen wouldn't consider, his adversaries can never predict his actions, and surprise serves him well. If he also possesses animal cunning, a kind of deep intuitional shrewdness, he can react quickly to the negative consequences of his recklessness, and can indeed appear to be more than human. Prudence requires that they strategize as though Enoch Kane were Satan himself, as though every fly and beetle and rat provided eyes and ears for the killer, as though ordinary precautions could never foil him. In addition to mulling over strategy, Tom spent a lot of time lately brooding about culpability. His own, not Kane's. By seizing on the name that he heard Kane speak in a dream, by making use of it in this psychological warfare, had he been the architect of the killer's Bartholomew obsession? Or if not the architect, then at least an assisting draftsman? Having never been nudged in that direction, would Kane have followed a different path that took him far from Celestina and Angel? The white killer was evil, and its evil would be expressed one way or another, regardless of the forces that affected his actions. If he had not killed Naomi on the fire tower, he would have killed her elsewhere when another opportunity for enrichment presented itself. If Victoria hadn't become a victim, some other woman would have died instead. If Cain hadn't become obsessed with the strange conviction that someone named Bartholomew might be the death of him, he would have filled his hollow heart with an equally strange obsession that might have led him anyway to Celestina, but would surely have brought violence down on someone else if not on her. Tom had acted with the best intentions but also with the intelligence and the good judgment that God had given him and that he had spent a lifetime honing. Good intentions alone could be the cobblestones from which the road to hell is built. However, good intentions formed through much self-doubt and second-guessing, as times always were, guided by wisdom acquired from experience, are all that can be asked of us. Unintended consequences that should have been foreseeable are, he knew, the stuff of damnation, but those that we cannot foresee, he hoped, are part of some design for which we can't be held responsible. Yet he brooded, even at breakfast, in spite of the constellation of clotted cream and berries, raisin scones and cinnamon butter. In better worlds, wiser Tom Vanadiums chose different tactics that resulted in less misery than this, and a far swifter conveyance of Enoch Kane to the halls of justice. But he was none of these Tom Vanadiums. He was only this Tom, flawed and struggling and he couldn't take comfort in the fact that somewhere else he had proved to be a better man. Perched on a chair with two plump bed pillows to booster, Angel extracted one crisp strip from her club sandwich and asked Tom, Where's bacon come from? You know where it comes from, her mother said with a yawn that betrayed her exhaustion after a night with no sleep and too much drama. Yeah, but I want to see if he knows, the girl explained. Fresh from the sedative-assisted sleep, which hadn't ended until they were in the taxi between the hospital and the hotel, Angel had proved as fully resilient as only children could be when they still retained their innocence. She didn't understand how seriously Wally had been hurt, of course, but if the attack by Kane had terrorized her while she had watched it from beneath her mother's bed, she didn't seem in danger of being permanently traumatized. Do you know where bacon comes from? She asked Tom again. From the supermarket, Tom said. Where does the supermarket get it? From farmers. 
Where do farmers get it? They grow it on bacon vines. The girl giggled. <laughs> Is that what you think? I've seen them, Tom assured her. My dear, you've never smelled anything better than a field full of bacon vines. Silly, Angel judged. Well, where do you think bacon comes from? Pigs. Really? You think that? He asked in his flat voice, which he sometimes wished were more musical, but he knew lent a sober conviction to anything he said. You think something so delicious could come from a fat, smelly, dirty, snorting old pig. Frowning, Angel studied the tasty strip of meat pinched between her fingers, reevaluating everything she thought she knew about the source of bacon. Who told you pigs? he asked. Mommy. Ah, uh, well, Mommy never lies. Yeah, Angel said, looking suspiciously at her mother, but she teases. Celestina smiled distractedly. Since arriving at the hotel an hour ago, she had been openly debating with herself whether to call her parents in Spruce Hills or to wait until later in the afternoon, when she might be able to report not just that she had a fiancé, and not only that she had a fiancé who had been shot and nearly killed, but also that his condition had been upgraded from critical to serious. As she had explained to Tom, in addition to worrying them with the news about Kane, she'd be stunning them with the announcement that she was going to marry a white man twice her age. My folks don't have one ounce of prejudice between them, but they sure do have firm ideas about what's appropriate and what's not. This will ring the big bell at the top of the white family scale to inappropriate. Besides, they are preparing for the funeral of a parishioner, and from personal experience, Celestina knew their day would be full. Nevertheless, at 10 minutes past 11, after picking at her breakfast, she finally decided to call them. As Celestina settled on the sofa with the foam in her lap, hesitating to dial until she worked up a bit more courage, Angel said to Tom, So what happened to your face? Angel, her mother admonished from across the room. That's impolite. I know, but how can I find out lest I ask? You don't have to find out about everything. I do, Angel objected. I was run over by a rhinoceros, Tom revealed. Angel blinked at him. The big, ugly animal? That's right. Has mean eyes and a horn thing on its nose? Exactly the one. Angel grimaced. I don't like rhinoceroses. Neither do I. Why'd it run over you? Because I was in its way. Why are you in this way? Because I crossed the street without looking. I'm not allowed to cross the street alone. Now you see why? Tom asked. Are you sad? Why should I be sad? Because your face looks all mushed. Oh, Lord, Celestina said exasperatedly. It's all right, Tom assured her. To Angel, he said, No, I'm not sad. And you know why? Why? See this? He placed a pepper shaker in front of her on the room service table and held the salt shaker concealed in his hand. Pepper, Angel said. But let's pretend it's me, okay? So here I am, stepping off the curb without looking both ways. He moved the shaker across the tablecloth, rocking it back and forth to convey that he was strolling without a care in the world. And wham, the rhinoceros hits me and never so much as stops to apologize. He knocked the pepper shaker on his side, and then with a groan put it upright once more. And then, when I get up off the street, my clothes are a mess, 
and I got this face. You should sue. I should, Tom agreed. But the point is this. With the finesse of a magician, he allowed the salt shaker to slip out of the concealment of his palm and stood beside the pepper. This is also me. No, this is you, Angel said, tapping one finger on the pepper shaker. Well, you see, that's the funny thing about all the important choices we make. If we make a really big wrong choice, if we do the really awful wrong thing, we're given another chance to continue on the right path. So the very moment I stupidly stepped off the curb without looking, I created another world where I did look both ways and saw the rhinoceros coming. And so, holding a shaker in each hand, Tom walked them forward, causing them to diverge slightly at first, but then moving them along exactly parallel to each other. Though this Tom now has a rhinoceros smack face, this other Tom, in his own world, has an ordinary face. Poor him. So ordinary. Leaning close to study the salt shaker, Angel says, Where's his world? Right here with ours. But we can't see it. She looked around the room. He's invisible like the Cheshire cat? His whole world is as real as ours. But we can't see it. And people in his world can't see us. There's millions and millions of worlds all here in the same place and invisible to one another. Where we keep getting chance after chance to live a good life and do the right thing. People like Enoch Kane, of course, never choose between the right and the wrong thing, but between two evils. For themselves, they create world after world of despair. For others, they make worlds of pain. So, he said, you see why I'm not sad? Angel raised her attention from the salt shaker to Tom's face, studied his scars for a moment, and said, No. I'm not sad, Tom said, because though I have this face here in this world... I know there's another me. In fact, lots of other Tom Vanadiums who don't have this space at all. Somewhere, I'm doing just fine, thank you. After thinking it over, the girl said, I'd be sad. Do you like dogs? Who doesn't like dogs? I want a puppy. Did you ever have a puppy? When I was a little boy. On the sofa, Celestina finally worked up the courage to dial her parents' number in Spruce Hills. Do you think dogs can talk? Angel asked. You know, Tom said, I never actually thought about it. I saw a horse talk on TV. Well, if a horse can talk, why not a dog? That's what I think. Her connection made, Celestina said, Hi, Mom, it's me. What about cats? Angel said. Mom? Celestina said. If dogs, why not cats? Mom, what's happening? Celestina asked, sudden worry in her voice. That's what I think, Angel said. Tom pushed his chair back from the table, got to his feet and moved toward Celestina. Bolting up from the couch, Mom, are you there? She turned to Tom, her face collapsing in a ghastly expression. I want a talking dog, Angel said. As Tom reached Celestina, she said, Shots. She said, Gunshots. She held the receiver in one hand and pulled her hair with the other, as if with the administration of a little pain she might wake up from this nightmare. She said, He's an organ. The inimitable Mr. Kane. The wizard of surprises. Master of the unlikely. Chapter 76 Boils
A stolen black Dodge Charger 440 Magnum, Junior Kane shot out of Spruce Hills on a straighter trajectory to Eugene as the winding roads of Southern Oregon would allow, staying off Interstate 5, where the policing was more aggressive. Carbuncles, to be precise. During the drive, he alternated between great gales of delighted laughter and racking sighs brought by pain and self-pity. The voodoo Baptist was dead, the curse broken with the death of he who had cast it. Yet, Junior must endure this final devastating plague. A boil is an inflamed, pus-filled, hair follicle or pore. On a street a half mile from the airport in Eugene, he sat in the park dodge long enough to gingerly unwind the bandages and use a tissue to wipe off the pungent but useless salve he had purchased at a pharmacy. Although he pressed the Kleenex to his face so gently that the pressure might not have broken the surface tension of a pool of water, the agony of the touch was so great that he nearly passed out. The rearview mirror revealed clusters of hideous, large, red knives with glistening yellow heads, and at the sight of himself, he actually did pass out for a minute or two. Just long enough to dream that he was a grotesque but misunderstood creature being pursued through a stormy night by crowds of angry villagers with torches and pitchforks. But then, the throbbing agony revived him. Carbuncles are interconnected clusters of boils. Wishing he had left the gauze wrappings on his face, but afraid that the airways might already be carrying news of a bandaged man who had murdered a minister in Spruce Hills, Junior abandoned the Dodge and hurriedly walked back to the private service terminal, where the pilot from Sacramento waited. At the sight of his passenger, the pilot blanched and said, Allergic reaction to what? And Junior said, Camellias. Because Sacramento was a camellia capital of the world, and all that he wanted was to get back there. We had left his new Ford van, his Clint's, and his Zed collection, and everything he needed to live in the future. The pilot couldn't conceal his intense revulsion, and Junior knew that he would have been stranded if he hadn't paid the round-trip charter fare in advance. Ordinarily, I recommended to apply hot compresses every two hours to relieve discomfort and the Haitian drainage, and I sent you home with a prescription for an antibiotic. Now here, lying on a bed in the emergency room of a Sacramento hospital, on a Saturday afternoon only six weeks before the Camellia Festival, Junior suffered under the care of a resident physician who was so young as to raise suspicion that he was merely playing doctor. But I've never seen a case like this. Usually, boils appear on the back of the neck, and in moist areas like the armpit and the groin. Not so often on the face, and never in a quantity like this. Really, I've never seen anything like it. Of course you've never seen anything like it, you worthless adolescent twit. You're not old enough to have seen squat, and even if you were older than your own grandfather, you would have never seen anything like this, Dr. Kildare, because this here is a true case of voodoo Baptist boils, and they don't come along often. I'm not sure which is more unusual, the side of the eruption, the number of boils, or the size of them. Why are you trying to decide? Hand me a knife and I'll cut your jugular, you brainless medical school dropout. I'm going to recommend that you be admitted overnight and that we land some of these under hospital conditions. We'll use a sterile needle on some of them, but a number are so large they're going to require a surgical knife and possibly the removal of the carbuncle core. This is usually done with the local anesthetic, but in this instance, while I don't think general anesthesia will be required, we'll probably want to sedate you. That is... Put you in a twilight sleep. I'll put you in a twilight sleep, you babbling cretin. Where'd you earn your medical degree, you nattering nitwit? Botswana? The Kingdom of Tonga? 
Did they rush you straight in here, or did you arrange all the insurance matters at reception, Mr. Pinchbeck? Cash, Junior said. I'll pay cash, with whatever amount of deposit is required. Then I'll attend to everything right away, the doctor said, reaching for the private curtain that surrounded the ER bed. For the love of God, Junior pleaded, can't you please give me something for the pain? The boy wonder physician turned to Junior again and assumed an expression of compassion so inauthentic that if he had been playing a doctor on even the cheesiest daytime soap opera, he would have been stripped of his actor's union card, fired, and possibly horsewhipped on a live television special. We'll be doing the procedure this afternoon, so I wouldn't want to give you anything much for the pain just prior to anesthesia and sedation. But don't you worry, Mr. Pinchbeck. Once we've lanced these boils, when you wake up, 90% of the pain will be gone. In abject misery, Junior lay waiting to go under the knife, more eager to be cut than he would have thought possible only a few hours before. The mere promise of this surgery thrilled him more than all the sex that he had ever enjoyed between the age of 13 and the Thursday just passed. The pubescent physician returned with three colleagues, who crowded behind the privacy curtain to proclaim that none of them had ever seen any case remotely like this before. The oldest, a myopic balding lump, insisted on asking Junior probing questions about his marital status, his family relationships, his dreams, and his self-esteem. The guy proved to be a clinical psychiatrist who speculated openly about the possibility of a psychosomatic component. The moron. At last, the humiliating backless gown, the precious drugs, even a pretty nurse who seemed to like him, and then oblivion. Chapter 77 Monday evening, January 15th, Paul Damascus arrived at the hotel in San Francisco with Grace White. He had kept watch over her in Spruce Hills for more than two days, sleeping on the floor in the hall outside of her room both nights, remaining close by her side when she was in public. They stayed with friends of hers until Harrison's funeral this morning, then flew south for a reunion of mother and daughter. Tom Vanadium liked this man at once. Cop instinct told him that Damascus was honest and reliable. Priestly insight suggested even more impressive qualities. We were about to order dinner from room service, Tom said, handing a menu to Paul. Grace declined food, but Tom ordered for her anyway, selecting those things that by now he knew Celestina liked, guessing that the mother's taste had shaped the daughter's. The two bereaved women huddled at one end of the living room, tearful, touching, talking quietly wondering together if there were any way that each could help the other to fill this sudden, deep, and terrible hole in their lives. Celestina had wanted to go to Oregon for the service, but Tom, Max Bellini, the Spruce Hill Police, and Wally Lipscomb, to whom, by Sunday, she had begun talking almost hourly on the telephone, all advised strenuously against making the trip. A man as crazy and as reckless as Enoch Kane, expecting to find her at the funeral home or the cemetery, might not be deterred by a police guard, no matter what its size. Angel didn't join the grieving women, but sat on the floor in front of the television, switching back and forth between Gunsmoke and the Monkees. Too young to be genuinely involved in either show, nevertheless she occasionally made gunfire sounds when Marshall Dillon went into battle, or invented her own lyrics to sing along with the Monkees. Once, she left the TV and came to Tom, where he sat talking with Paul. It's like Gunsmoke and the Monkees are next to each other on the TV, both at the same time. But the monkeys, they can't see the cowboys, and the cowboys, they can't see the monkeys. Although to Paul this was no more than childish chatter, Tom knew at once that the girl referred to his explanation for why he wasn't sad about his damaged face, 
The salt and pepper shakers representing two toms, the hit and run rhinoceros, the different worlds all in one place. Yes, Angel. That's something like what I was talking about. She returned to the television. That's a special little kid, Tom said thoughtfully. Really cute, Paul agreed. Cuteness wasn't the quality Tom had in mind. How's she taking her grandpa's death, Paul asked. Little trooper. Sometimes Angel seemed troubled by what she had been told about her grandfather, and at those moments she appeared downcast, somber. But she was just three after all, too young to grasp the permanence of death. She would have probably not been surprised if Harrison White had walked through the door in a little while during the Man from Uncle or the Lucy show. While they waited for the room service waiter to arrive, Tom got from Paul a detailed report of Enoch Kane's attack on the parsonage. It heard most of it from friends in the state police homicide division which was assisting the Spruce Hills authorities. But Paul's account was more vivid. The ferocity of the assault convinced Tom that whatever the killer's twisted motives might be, Celestine and her mother, and not least of all Angel, were in danger as long as Cain roamed free. Perhaps as long as he lived. Dinner arrived, and Tom persuaded Celestine and Grace to come to the table for Angel's sake, even if they had no appetite. After so much chaos and confusion, the child needed stability and routine wherever they could be provided. Nothing brought a sense of order and normalcy to a disorder and a distressing day more surely than the gathering of family and friends around a dinner table. Although, by unspoken agreement, they avoided any talk of loss and death. The mood remained grim. Angel sat in thoughtful silence, pushing her food around her plate rather than eating it. Her demeanor intrigued Tom, and he noticed that it worried her mother who put a different interpretation on it than he did. He slid his plate aside. From a pocket, he withdrew a quarter, which always served him well with children, as with murderers. Angel brightened at the sight of the coin turning end over end across his knuckles. I can learn to do that, she asserted. When your hands are bigger, Tom agreed. I'm sure you could. In fact, one day, I'll teach you. Clenching his right hand around the quarter, Waving left hand over to right, he intoned, Jingle, jangle, mingle, jingle. Opening his right hand, he revealed the coin had disappeared. Angel cocked her head and studied his left hand, which he had closed while opening his right. She pointed. It's there. I'm afraid you're wrong. When Tom opened his left hand, the palm lay as bare as that of a blind beggar in a country of thieves. Meanwhile, his right hand had tightened into a fist again. Where did it go? Grace asked her granddaughter, making as much effort as she could to lighten the mood for the girl's sake. Regarding Tom's clenched right hand with suspicion, Angel said, Not there. The princess is correct, he acknowledged, revealing that this hand was still empty. Then he reached to the girl and plucked the quarter from her ear. That's not magic, Angel declared. It sure looked like magic to me, said Celestina. Me too, Paul agreed. Angel was adamant. Nope, I could learn that, like dressing myself and saying thank you. You could, Tom agreed. With his bent thumb against the crook of his forefinger, he flipped the quarter. Even as the coin snapped off the thumbnail and began to stir in the air, Tom flung up both hands, fingers spread to show them empty and to distract. Yet on a second look, the coin was not airborne as it seemed to be no longer spinning, wink-wink, before their dazzled eyes. It had vanished as though into the payment slot of an ethereal vending machine that dispensed mystery in return. Around the dinner table, 
The adults applauded, but the tougher audience squinted at the ceiling, towards what she believed the coin had arced, then at the table, where it ought to have fallen amongst the water glasses or in her creamed corn. At last, she looked at Tom and said, Not magic. Grace, Celestina, and Paul expressed amusement and amazement at Angel's critical judgment. Undeterred, the girl said, Not magic, but maybe I can't learn to do that one ever. As though stirred by static electricity, the fine hairs on the backs of Tom's hands quivered, and a current of expectation coursed through him. Since childhood, he had been waiting for this moment, if indeed it was the moment, and he had nearly lost hope that the much-desired encounter would ever come to pass. He had expected to find others with his perceptions amongst physicists or mathematicians, among monks or mystics. But never in the form of a three-year-old girl dressed all in midnight blue, except for a red belt and two red hair bows. His mouth was dry when he said to Angel, Well, it seems pretty magical to me, that flip coin trick. Magic is like stuff no one knows how it happens. And you know what happened to the quarter. Sure. He couldn't work up sufficient saliva to get the rasp out of his voice. Then you could learn to do it. She shook her head and red bows fluttered. No, because you didn't just move it around. Move it around? From this hand here to that one or somewhere. Then what did I do with it? You threw it in a gun smoke, Angel said. Where? Asked Grace. Heart racing, Tom produced another quarter from a pants pocket. For the benefit of the adults, he performed the proper preparation, a little patter and the ten-finger flim-flam, because in magic as in jewelry, every diamond must have the proper setting if it's to glitter impressively. In the execution, he was likewise scrupulous, for he didn't want the grown-ups to see what Angel saw. He preferred a believe it was sleight of hand, or magic. After the usual moves, he briefly closed his right hand around the coin, and then with a snap of his wrist, flung it at Angel, simultaneously distracting with flourishes of plenty. The three adults exclaimed at the disappearance of the quarter, applauded again, and looked knowingly at Tom's hands, which is closed at the sudden conclusion of all the flourishes. Angel, however, focused on the point in the air above the table. Faint furrows marked her brow for a moment, but then the frown gave way to a smile. Did that one go to Gunsmoke too? Tom asked hoarsely. Maybe, said Angel, or maybe to the monkeys, or maybe to where you didn't get run down by the rhinoceros. Tom opened his empty hands and then filled one of them with his water glass. The rattling ice belied his calm face. To Paul Damascus, Angel said, Do you know where bacon comes from? Pigs, Paul said. No, Angel said. She giggled at his ignorance. Celestina stared curiously at Tom Vanadium. She had witnessed the effect of vanishment, though she hadn't actually seen the coin disappear in midair. Yet she seemed to sense either that something more than sleight of hand had just transpired, or the trick had a meaning she missed. Before Celestina probed and perhaps touched upon a sore tooth of truth, Tom launched into the story of King Obadiah, Pharaoh of the Fantastic, who had taught him all he knew about sleight of hand. Later, after they had finished eating but were still sitting at the table over coffee, the conversation turned solemn, although for the moment, the subject wasn't the late Harrison White. 
How long the two women and the girl must hide out, when and where they will be able to resume lives as normal as might be possible for them. These were the issues of the moment. The longer they were required to lie low on fear, the more likely Celestina would be to cast caution aside and return to Pacific Heights. Tom knew her well enough to be sure that she was a fighter rather than a runner. Being in hiding frustrated her. Day by day, hour by hour, with no target day for resuming a normal life, she would quickly lose patience. Rubbed raw, her dignity and sense of justice would compel her to act, perhaps more out of emotion than out of reason. To buy as much time as possible while Enoch Kane's assault was still fresh in Celestina's mind, Tom proposed that they remain hidden away for another two weeks, unless the killer was apprehended sooner. Then if you go to Wally's house from here, you'll want to install the best alarm system you can get, and you should lead a restricted life for quite a while, even higher security if you can afford it. The smartest thing will be to move out of San Francisco as soon as Wally's recovered. He retired young, right? And a painter can paint anywhere. Sell the properties here, start over somewhere else, and make the move in such a way that you can't be easily traced. I can help you work that out. Is it as bad as that? Celestina wondered plaintively, though she knew the answer. I love San Francisco. The city inspires my work. I've built a life here. Is it really as bad as that? It's that bad and worse, Grace said firmly. Even if they catch him, you're going to live with the quiet fear that he might escape one day. As long as you know he can find you, then you're never going to be completely at peace. And if you love this city so much that you'll put Angel in jeopardy, then who have you been listening to all these years, girl? Because it hasn't been me. The decision had already been made that Grace would move in with Celestina and then, following the wedding, with Celestina and Wally. In Spruce Hills, she had dear friends whom she would miss, but there was nothing else in Oregon to draw her back, other than the narrow plot beside Harrison, where she expected eventually to be buried. The parsonage fire had destroyed all her personal effects, and every family treasure from Celestina's grade school spelling bee medals to the last precious photograph. She wanted only to be close to her one remaining daughter and her granddaughter, to be part of the new life that they would build with Wally Lipscomb. Taking her mother's advice to heart, Celestine aside. Alright, let's just pray they catch him. But if they don't, two weeks. And then the rest of the plan, the way you said, Tom. Except that I can't tolerate two weeks in a hotel, cooped up, afraid to go into the streets. No sun, no fresh air. Come with me, Paul Damascus said at once, to Bright Beach. It's far away from San Francisco and he'd never think of looking for you there. Why would he? You've got no connection to the place. I've got a house with enough room. You're welcome, and you wouldn't be among strangers. Celestina hardly knew Paul, and although he had saved her mother's life, his offer raised a look of doubt from her. No hesitation preceded Grace's response. That's very generous of you, Paul, and I for one accept. Is this the house where you live with your Perry? It is, he confirmed. Tom had no idea who Perry might be, but something in the way Grace asked the question and the way she regarded Paul suggested that she knew something about Perry that had won her deep respect and admiration. All right, Celestina conceded and looked relieved. Thank you, Paul. You're not only an exceptionally brave man, but a gracious one as well. Paul's Mediterranean complexion didn't make a blush easy to detect, but Tom thought his face brightened until it was a shade or two closer to the color of his rust-red hair. His eyes, usually so direct, evaded Celestina. I'm no hero, Paul insisted. I just got your mom out of there in the process of saving myself.
Some process, Grace said, gently scornful of his modesty. Angel, busy with a cookie through most of this, licked crumbs from her lips and asked Paul, Do you have a puppy? No puppy, I'm afraid. Do you have a goat? Would your decision to visit me be affected if I did? Depends, said Angel. On what? Does the goat live in the house or outside? Actually, I don't have a goat. Good. Do you have cheese? By gesture, Celestina indicated that she wanted to see Tom alone. While Angel continued her relentless interrogation of Paul Damascus, Tom joined her mother in front of a large window at the end of the room furthest from the dinner table. The ship at night floated over the city and cast down nets of darkness, gathering millions of lights like luminous fishes in its black toils. Celestina stared out for a moment and then turned her head to look at Tom, with both the shade of the night and the sparkle of the metropolis still capturing her eyes. What was that all about? He briefly considered playing dumb, but he knew she was too smart for that. Gunsmoke, you mean. Listen, I know you'll do whatever is necessary to keep Angel safe, because you love her so much. Love will give you greater strength and determination than any other motive. But you should know this much. You need to keep her safe for another reason. She's special. I don't want to explain why she's special, or how I know that she is, because this isn't the time or place. Not with your dad's death and Wally in the hospital and you still shaky from the attack. But I need to know. He nodded. You do. Yes. But you don't need to know right now. Later. When you're calmer. When you're clearer. It's too important to rush you through it now. Wally gave her tests. She's got an exceptional understanding of color, spatial relationships, and geometric forms for a child her age. She may be a visual prodigy. Oh, I know she is, he said. I know how clearly she sees. Eye to eye with Tom, Celestina herself did some clear seeing. You're special too, in lots of obvious ways. But like Angel, you're special in some secret way, aren't you? I'm gifted to a small extent, and it's an unusual gift, he admitted. Nothing world-shaking. More than anything, really, it's a special perception I've been given. Angel's gift seems to be different from mine, but related. In 50 years, she's the first I've ever met who's somewhat like me. I'm still shaking inside from the shock of finding her. But please, let's say this for Bright Beach and a better evening. You go down there tomorrow with Paul, okay? I'll stay here to look after Wally. When he's able to travel, I'll bring him with me. I know you'll want him to hear what I have to say, too. Is it a deal? Torn between curiosity and emotional exhaustion, Celestina held his gaze, thinking, and finally she said, Deal. Tom stared down into the oceanic depths of the city, through a wreath of buildings, to the lamp fish cars schooling through the great trenches. I'm going to tell you something about your father that might comfort you, he said, but you can't ask me for more than I'm ready to say right now. It's all a part of what I'll discuss with you in Bright Beach. She said nothing. Taking her silence for assent, Tom continued. Your father is gone from here. Gone forever. But he still lives in other worlds. This isn't a statement of faith alone. If Albert Einstein were still alive and standing here, he'd tell you that it's true. Your father is with you in many places, and so is Femi. In many places, she didn't die in childbirth. 
In some worlds, she was never raped. Her life never blighted. But there's an irony in that, isn't there? Because in those worlds, Angel doesn't exist. Yet, Angel is a miracle and a blessing. He looked up from the city to the woman. So when you're lying in bed tonight, kept awake by grief, don't think just about what you've lost with your father and Femi. Think about what you have in this world that you've never known in some others. Angel. Whether God's a Catholic, a Baptist, a Jew, a Muslim, or a quantum mechanic, he gives us compensation for our pain. Compensation right here in this world. Not just in those parallel to it, and not just in some afterlife. Always compensation for the pain, if we recognize it when we see it. Her eyes, lustrous pools, brim with the need to know, but she respected the deal. Only half understood all that, and I don't even know which half, but in some strange way, it feels true. Thank you. I will think about it tonight, when I can't sleep. She stepped close and kissed him on the cheek. Who are you, Tom Vanadium? He smiled and shrugged. I used to be a fisher of men. Now I hunt them. One in particular. 916-633-1537. Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com. Ratchet Book Club on Twitter. Ratchet Book Club on Facebook. Leave review on Spotify. It takes like 13 seconds. Leave review on Podchaser. Copy and paste that into Apple Podcasts. Copy and paste that into the Good Pods app. Let your friends know about the show. Uh, you can donate to the show at patreon.com slash single simulcast or on buymeacoffee.com slash sscast or on the Good Pods app. You can leave a tip in the tip jar. Thanks so much for listening. I greatly appreciate it. Y'all be good. I'm going to holler at you later. Peace. Outro to Ratchet Book Club is by That Kid Garan and it's called Goodbyes. You can email him at tkgbeats94 at gmail.com for more information on how to lease this beat. This is Single Simulcast. Don't know my dad,